Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson. And before we start with today's interview with Kathy Ryan, I have some community notes. First, Mage the Podcast has switched to Patreon, along with every organization with community support. And you can go support us at patreon.com slash magethepodcast. We have various benefits at various levels. $1 gets you a monthly executive producer shout out. At $3, you get access to the executive producer channel and a special feed that includes our periodic extra episodes. And it just goes up for from there. If you're supporting us through Anchor, you are welcome to continue doing that, but if you jump to Patreon, you will automatically get the updates and goodies as we release them. Second, the pre-order for Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic is out, and it'd be really swell if you used our referral link to get to it. Uh, this book is a guide to high-level, high-power, and high-price magic, and was worked on by our very own Josh Heath, so we look forward to seeing your work, Josh. If you're holding off we will likely do an episode on it when it is available and talk to some of the devs and writers behind it. Link is in the show notes. Third, I'm planning an update to Ascension's Landscape, my book on setting considerations for Mage. If you grab it now, you'll automatically get the updated copy once it's done. And I plan on raising the price as I'll be adding 10 pages of new content. And if you grab it now, you'll get all future updates of Ascension's Landscape at no additional price. Thank you to everyone who's grabbed it and made my weird little book an Electrum bestseller. Today's interview is a conversation with Kathy Ryan about early White Wolf and Kathy's work with the Marauders and the Nefondi, as well as some notes on what she had planned to do with Mage's 20th anniversary. This was an emotional conversation for Kathy as the end of the Mage the Ascension line happened somewhat suddenly and without a terrible amount of notice that it was going to be replaced with what was then the New World of Darkness. At some points in the conversation, there were exhibits that were being held up that were hard to describe, so I just kind of cut those sections out, so if it suddenly jumps, that's why. A special thanks to Satirist Phil Bricado for arranging this interview, and with that, this interview was done as part of TriatCon, which I did with Chaz, Josh, and Victor, because I have poor impulse control. So if you hear reference to the Helen Keller Foundation, that was our partner charity that we raised a little over $2,000 for who distributes anti-blindness medication in sub-Saharan Africa. The opening was kind of end made a race and the question that preceded me talking was Kathy just kind of being curious about why I do a podcast about mage and that's kind of where it starts. I guess my, my TLDR is uh, Mage is a Wonderful Game, set in an interesting world, written by well-meaning and capable people, uh, and my job is as a uh, evangelist. I am not going to say that it's the greatest thing ever, but I still think it's pretty great. It's had a couple of revisions to it, and by definition, there's something in it for everyone. And if someone wants to shit on one part of it, fine. There's something else there. Not everyone wants to do a gritty urban game, and not everyone wants to go to the Umbra. And there's just so much there. And Kathy, uh, you made a lot of it possible. And at minimum, people should know the person in, in that regard. So, <laughs> Hype! <laughs> 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 what was Gen Con like, I guess, in the 90s? I, I went two years ago, and it was just 90,000 people, of which 88,000 were playing Dungeons & Dragons. At the early part of the 90s, we were like rock stars. Vampire had come out, when, when Kathy and I joined the staff in 93, Vampire had come out two years earlier, almost exactly two years earlier, and people were crazy for it. They were crazy. Anything that we released, people would be lined up you know, halfway across the exhibit hall, when they would open up the doors, just this huge rush of geeky humanity would charge into the exhibit room. And, and it felt like half of them headed straight for our booth. It was exhilarating. It was great. It was scary. It was stressful. 
there were people who cared about D&D. It was what we played at White Wolf. And everybody at Wizards of the Coast was playing White Wolf games. The, the lines were huge in part because that's where we would release the books. They, the only place in the world you could get Vampire on the first day or Werewolf on the first day was Gen Con. That was the debate debut. So I never felt like a rock star. I felt small and nervous. And it was a huge adventure to be there and to just walk around the exhibit hall and meet some of these folks. The guys who did the Call of Cthulhu game at the time, it was like meeting ZZ Top. They all had those kinds of beards and there were a lot of crazy people in the industry. And I mean that in a, we weren't all on our meds yet since, but also just folks who would give up a job that paid twice as much to come work on a role-playing game. Here the conversation shifts from talks of Gen Con to talk of Dragon Con, which is in Georgia. Somebody had hired a hearse so that we could ferry people from the White Wolf Party, which was in Stone Mountain, which was about 20, 25 minutes outside of Atlanta, back and forth to uh, Dragon Con, which, you know, is in downtown Atlanta. And I remember at one point being crammed in, John Bridges was driving and being crammed into the hearse with a bunch of people that included a wolf bar, a Wolfgang bar, Tawin Woodruff, Bill and John Bridges. I think William Spencer Hale was in there. Um, we're, we're literally, we're, we're wrapped around each other because there were way too many people the, for, for this, uh, for this hearse. And we're driving through traffic on a Saturday night. We started talking back, John, don't wreck. You'll kill half the gaming industry. <laughs> That was kind of the way the that part of the that that rising part of the industry was in the early 90s because you had wizards of the coast and uh and white wolf were suddenly just exploding out of nowhere white wolf had originally started as a magazine that had been around for a while and you know the fusion with lion rampant but when those two when when their powers converged suddenly there was there was you know and lo there was vampire a lot of the folk involved, you know, turned out to have been friends from college of each other. My best friend in college was Ethan Skemp. Aileen Miles, who was the other typesetting monkey with me. Ethan was in the Call of Cthulhu game, Buncombe County Community College or something like that. That was run by Nikki and Jackie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I didn't remember that. There's all these links. And certainly a lot of people who we had never met before. Strange guy with long hair from Richmond walks into White Wolf's offices um, around Dragon Con. And I think I met you then. A month later, you'd been hired and we're off to Gen Con. Well, this intern who day we left for Gen Con was also my last day in Georgia, my last day living at my internship. So I had everything I owned in the world that wasn't at my parents' house was in my car and also Bill. Bill in passenger seat and all the music I owned and lots of my books and things were in that car. And we started driving and talking and to Milwaukee because that was where we were gonna release Mage, which was the first game I ever worked on and the first fiction I ever had published were the three little Amanda snippets. After I interviewed for, for Mage, Mage was in the process of being written because of an all hands on deck thing that actually Kathy could Kathy could speak to more from experience than I could because I wasn't there. I just heard about it afterward. They sent me as soon as it was done, as soon as it was uh, out of editing, they sent it to me and to the other thing, 
two or three other people who had applied for the position and said, here, read this and tell us what you would do with it. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. If you were in charge of this line, what would you do? And one of the things the like I wrote 25, 28, something like that pages worth of stuff about that, which included some of the, the books that wound up you know being published like Destiny's Price digital web one of the first things that i said is this this needs to be personal this needs an emotional connection because there's a lot of great ideas flying around in here but people have to give a shit the thing that had really caught my attention in that draft was kathy's amanda stories i want to lead in a lot of the mage books with the continuing adventures of amanda and use each of those as sort of setting the stage said, because I really, I love the character. I love what you, I love how you wrote it. And I love how you write. I liked the character. I liked what you were doing with, it. I liked the way you wrote about it. And I was like, Amanda is somebody that people are going to care about. So let's lead in to these gargantuan tomes of esoterica with, with people that the readers will care about. There's so much more to the, uh, to the Amanda saga than what actually made it into the book because we were always on really tight word counts. Here, Kathy switches to talk about some of her experiences as a White Wolf intern. There were three interns in the summer of 93 and Brian was the copy editing intern. Keith Winkler um, was the marketing and business side intern and I was Mark Reinhagen's personal intern, which well, it was very, very interesting. <laughs> I was handed handed a printout of the manuscript, given a desk with a little a little desktop Mac on it, and told read this. I came back the next day having read that. Uh, I was in a youth hostel at that point in Clarkston. I don't think it exists anymore. It was really horrible. But I'd been to lunch with Brian and Keith, and Brian got an apartment for a short-term lease, and I moved in to Brian's apartment. At the end of the summer, Brian stayed on. You moved in with him. Meanwhile, by the time I'd come down the following year, Aileen was there and had an apartment and Fred Yelk was going to come down and move in there. And I moved in with somebody else in the production department for a little bit while her uh, college friend was still moving down. When that was up, Phil and Brian were like, we've got an extra room at our house, you know, in this apartment complex. Now, the extra room in question was actually the laundry room. (laughs) large enough for a washer and a dryer and room to walk down towards them, a little extra space. So that became Kathy's room. I lived in the laundry room on a camp cot with a sleeping bag and I had a portable closet, you know, rack. And that was what my clothes were on. And I had my library with me. It was a bunch of paperbacks in a Coca-Cola crate. John Le Carre and Tolkien and my copy of, oh, The Book of Beasts. I didn't own a computer. None of us owned any phones either. There was one phone in the house, and that was a thing. You have a bunch of design credits in the world of darkness, Kathy. What was that like? You had made mention that you had done some typesetting. As someone who was more involved in making the book portion of a book happen, in addition to the text, what was that like, if you have any, uh, any memories or thoughts on that? So the whole thing about being Mark Reinhagen's intern did not last terribly long. I wound up working in with development as writing. Shout out to Brian Campbell, who originally the two of us were going to write these interstitial pieces for Mage. And then I kind of got the bit between my teeth and I kind of wrote and he copy edited them. 
when it came time to decide what department lunch I was going to go to, because back in the day, yeah. everybody went out to lunch or we had sandwiches delivered. You went to lunch with somebody every week. I caucused with production because I was on that side of the building. I guess that was the reason. But Rich Thomas, who he's just fantastic. Rich Thomas, when I was end of my internship, said, you know, if you go back to college and you get a, a computer class under your belt, there could be a job waiting for you here when you come back. I took a computer class when I got back and I, I even had an interactive adventure. It was a hypertext card stack with hand-drawn illustrations in it. I came back and, you know, I'd learned to do some things on a Mac. I graduated employed. I knew I was going to drive down to Atlanta after I graduated. And I had this job waiting for me in the production department. I was put to work scanning in images. Back in the day, it was a big deal to scan an image. If it was a large piece, we had to send it out to an imaging company across town. If it was a small piece, it would fit on this incredibly expensive piece of equipment that was in the production department attached to its own its standalone computer I would put in an image, say one of Mark Jackson's fantastic, the Sphinx. So I would set it up so that it was going to scan this and I'd hit the button on the um, Twain uh, plugin for Photoshop. And then I would stand up and go wander around the building for a while because for a high resolution image, it was going to take five or 10 minutes. Go check in on, on Brian and the rat in his office. You go around the building and just meet and talk to everybody. And we would have ideas for games and ideas for everything. Come back and it would just be finishing the scan and sit down, queue up another one and the button. Phew, and go around the building again. That was the first thing I did was help scan in the art, I think. I graduated to laying out books and Larry Snelly showed me how to do that. And Sam Chupp, Rich Thomas taught me pretty much everything I know about uh, print production, professionally class act, just all the principles of design that I later read about in books. I'm still using things that I learned at White Wolf in the uh, in the production department. Um, it was fantastic. Was that digital layout at that point, or was that still like a, a photographic process? It was digital. We were very advanced. Okay. We were using Aldous PageMaker, mm -hmm. not yeah. Adobe yeah, PageMaker. Yeah. Aldous PageMaker, Adobe Photoshop, and Macromedia Freehand or something. The books were too big to fit on the actual computers. We, we had these disks that things had to fit on and they had, I think, well, it was measured in megabytes and it was not a lot of megabytes. We'd have links to the images in the program. The images themselves had to be stored on one of these external disks. I got to be fairly fast at that. It really helped that White Wolf was quite sophisticated for the time. We would have these markers in bracket, beginning of each new section that told PageMaker when you imported it, what format that line uh, that paragraph was supposed to be in. And that was helpful. Didn't always work. So at first I was mostly typesetting. Occasionally we'd have somebody who was a freelancer who had not met the deadline and turned in their artwork. So there would be like, you know, we're short two pieces or four pieces or whatever. And pretty much everybody at the company who could draw at some point or another filled in with artwork. I think my first published artwork was a were tiger in Rage Across the Amazon did rage cards when that became a thing. Did change the cards when that became a thing. In print production, you have to make things work out the signatures. So it's gotta be multiples of eight for the books. And, and the splat books had very specific targets. I think it was 92 pages, mm -hmm. 96 pages. 
72 pages. Very specific how big you could make the books. Uh, but of course, you don't know how big the book is going to be until you've received all of the art and you've received all of the text and you've overwritten and then cut and then edited and then had to go through the book individually by each paragraph and see which ones you could you could squeeze up to fit all of the mage title uh, into. But frequently you'd, you'd get to the end of a book and there would be, oh, okay, to make our signature of eight, we have three pages that are blank. We're not going to put out a blank book. We should put in an ad. And my first marketing experience was making these ads. I'd go find, find the most inspiring piece of artwork from an upcoming title and write ads for the back of the book, which are still some of the, my favorite things I've ever done are promotional pieces. The second edition posters were kind of a challenge. First edition, we were the ultimate in class because when it came time to put a cover on the book for Vampire, Rich had decided we're not competing with D&D on their terms, basically. And then there was a piece of green vein marble for Micah countertop and a dead rose. Those were the cover of Vampire the Masquerade, and it stood out from everything else at the time. Nobody looked like that. That was inspired. Rich is one of the people, and he doesn't get nearly enough credit for what a foundational figure he has been and continues to be in the industry. The World of Darkness aesthetic is rich. He's the one who hired Bradstreet. He's the one who brought on Josh Timbrook. And the experimentation, the willingness to do things like, you know, Book of Nod, Children of the Inquisition, or The Fragile Path, which Kathy laid out. And Ooh, I have it down here somewhere. I have the red cover edition. Once upon a time, before everything was digital, you printed stuff. It didn't always turn out the way that it was expected. We had spec this book X number of pages, and, and it was, I think it's probably the pinnacle of my experience in book design. It had different colored pages for different traditions, and it had all kinds of artwork inside it. We wrote the credits in character, yes. which I got in trouble with the authors for that, <laughs> because oh the actual credits are on the very last page. At Dragon Con 95, I think, when that came out, Owl and Mark and I think it was Nancy. We need to talk to you about the credit. And I'm like, whoa, what, what about it? And they're like, they open it to the credits page. The stories are credited to these imaginary characters. And I said, oh, geez, I'm sorry. See, they're in the back. Owl says, one of the, the most enjoyable things about being a published author is seeing your name in the credits in print. I'm like, thank you. Point taken. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. <laughs> A lot of things pro and con can be said about the White Wolf management in those days, but one of the best things is they gave us pretty much pretty much carte blanche to do whatever the hell crazy idea occurred to us. And so we came up with things like The Fragile Path, and they were like, okay, as long as it sells, and it almost inevitably in those days did. I think you're credited as Lady Kathleen Ryan BSR. I don't know what the BSR is, and I think it was... Uh, Switcher Street Regulars. Regulars. <laughs> oh, okay. Kathy was the only one who could wrap her head around the concept of marauders without making them ridiculous and uh, ridiculous and offensive and trite. They're not crazy. They're not here. They just look like they're here. They're somewhere mm. else. And I hate comparing fictional anything to real world problems. If you have psychotic break, you know, you're interacting with something that is not everybody else's reality. And in the case of the Marauder, it just happens to be true for this small bubble, which is usually the same size as the Marauder, but depending on how powerful you are, you may get bigger. The piece I didn't write for 
M20 on the Marauders. Part of it was just set in a quiet that was the size of a city park. I'd ask everybody listening, not just you guys, to remember I got out of gaming. I haven't written game or fiction really since White Wolf did Ascension, and I discovered that everything I'd ever written was going to go out of print. That was a little traumatic because I didn't know about it until I got out in the woods where I did my writing. I used to go camping to write because it got me away from three roommates and... They all worked at White Wolf still, and I guess the assumption was that they would have told me stuff. And I was in a D&D game with some of the same folks and also a couple more people who worked still at White Wolf. I guess everybody thought that someone had told me that we were about to blow up the world, and no one had. So I get out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's not really the middle of nowhere. It's a lovely park. I got, get out there and I read the writer's guidelines for the first time and discover nothing I've ever written is going to still be around. That was not good. I, I end up on the phone with Bill in tears. One of the worst things that can happen as the kind of writers that we were in you know, shared universe, somebody else owns it. It can go out of print and stay there. No one else is ever going to come along and, and say, hey, we really liked this book that we read viewers from way back when and we want to do a new edition or collected whatever you know you don't get republished and you can't do anything with the characters that you created anymore i've been tempted to come back twice once was for m20 and once was for a story collection ca suleiman was putting together for i don't remember the name of it but each time i've been tempted to come back you know i've had these anxiety attacks and things i think go back to that camping trip I tried for M20, and I'm so sorry to everybody who saw my name on Kickstarter and was hopeful. And I started the draft of that and of the Marauder section, and I could not do it. One of the things people forget when, when they see these books that, you know, are, are now once again generally available and so forth, is that at, in, at the time, it was considered a disposable medium. It was basically, oh, well, there's, there's just game. This caused you know, a fair amount of friction later, but there was an attitude very early on of one for all and wall for one. And as things went on, it became more and more obvious that there were those of us who were staying in the, uh, staying in the office you know, really late to create or edit or lay out these books. And then there were the people who you know, came in, did a nine to five and left. And that ultimately it was the company that owned what we were creating. And, you know, as, as Kathy was saying, and this is one of the reasons why I love the Amanda stories so much. Kathy invests a great deal of herself into her creations. They're not just words to fill out a, a word count. The Butcher Street regulars, Robert Davenport, the Islington Horror, you know, Amanda Senek. They are these amazing imaginative creations that are deeply a part of Kathy Ryan. And that shows to and to the realization of oh well you know but this will be taken out of print if we want or this will be sold I, I'm grappling with this and, and Terry you and I have talked about I'm grappling with this idea now with the Hollywood optioning the world of darkness like that's great I wonder if any of us will even get mentioned the long tail of that is on one hand it's really wonderful to see that our work has affected so many lives it's changed so many lives has influenced inspired so many people and on the other hand we put those first few years, we put everything we had into everything we created, some like Kathy, even more so than most. And that's why the magic is there. And that magic has a cost. There are a number of folks from the old days who can't write anymore, who can't draw anymore, because 
we invested so much of ourselves into those creations and then had them taken away. Yes, Nancy Kilpatrick, yeah, right. That is, to the folks who are listening, one of the things that I would ask is that when you, know, when you have the opportunity to cross paths with the folks who have created it, whether it's online or at a convention or stuff, please remember that a human being put a whole hell of a lot of emotional investment into the things that they've created. And remember that that person is still a person. And to some extent, the joy of modernity is uh, no one is ever out of print. The hard part is not staying in print. It's getting known in the first place. There are over 100 titles added to drive through RPG a day. I, I find it interesting that you were talking about that experience of being like, these words are gone. And me going, what do you mean? I just hit a button that said literally buy every piece of work this person ever did. Like, And, and that... That, that to me is another one of those flip sides of how, how, how the nature is gaming. And now, now it is a fight to be known. So if, if you're comfortable talking about it, what were your thoughts on M20? Or if someone were to say, hey, Kathy, we'd like your opinions on what we could do to make the Marauders 2021-ish, or maybe how your thoughts have changed over it. Just kind of anything about your relationship with the Marauders. There's some kinds of villains that I hate. Anybody who thinks that they're the bad guy that's lazy writing. If you're the bad guy, you probably don't think you're the bad guy. Some of the initial characterizations of Marauders and Nefandi, I think the Malkavians suffered a great deal more from this until, until later on. The Nefandi and the Marauders were originally, you know, hey, they're evil because they're evil. They're crazy because they're crazy. But in my own head, at least, I don't know if it's ever made it into the publications. But I mean, when a Marauder becomes a Marauder, the avatar is in charge now. It's not the person because everything's being filtered through the avatar that really controls the quiet or not controls, but interprets. interprets. Exactly. In the piece that I didn't finish writing for the Marauders from 20, one character was basically going to go try and find whoever was at the center of this quiet that was at the size of a city park and knew that whatever they saw, because it was another Marauder, was going to be filtered through what they had and also what's in the city park isn't the city park it's the reality that this other person lives in how do you get something like the butcher street regulars where everybody's working together even though nobody some of the folks in that are just not functional at all would not be functional without the avatar being the one in charge that's the situation where a person willingly or not the person gives way to the ascension of this avatar and the person doesn't count in a way anymore. On the Nefandi side, my take on it was generally that if you were willing to go into the calls, you, you had a reason. And I, in the Amanda series, Mercedes goes through the call. She had lost everything in the Peninsula War, and including her faith. And so this belief that you will eventually be reunited with your family because this is what's going to happen to you in the afterlife. That after you die, you know, you've been a good Catholic, you will go to heaven, whatever the, your conception of that is, that that's what's going to happen to you. When she lost that faith, meant she was never going to see her children again, never going to see her husband again, never see any of these family members who had died in that war. And she awakens, she follows Senex for a good long time, but Jericho is able to be that doubt. And Nefandi give up possibility of the ascension of that avatar in my opinion i'm sure lots of people will disagree on a lot of this but they've given up that the avatar will ascend in favor of they know what's going to happen to them next it's the act of will over your own destiny that the marauders give up 
and then Effandi steal from what should naturally happen next. Your work with Mercy and Jericho was one of the big inspirations that I had for taking the Nefandi from they are of the worm for they are evil into a much more nuanced and human, though still completely appalling, but nuanced and empathetic, I guess, perspective on them. For me with the Marauders, it was always almost the, the other way around, that it was the person had snapped and the Avatar was trying their best mm. to make things make sense. And it was almost, I don't want to say like it was a metaphor for a bad relationship, but like this is how far the Avatar is willing to go to make things work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that can go in some really bad directions when you have what is essentially a, sh- a, a, a broken demigod and somebody trying to, uh, to make things work out for it. What was it like receiving kind of that 1E interpretation where the Marauders knew exactly what they were doing? They were trying to sow chaos and break reality and bring back the mythic age. Was that pivot something that you had talked about or was that something you kind of just like decreed? Here, Kathy makes mention of a long car trip she took with Satoros on the way to Gen Con when she had just started, where a remarkable amount of mage continuity in the planning for second edition kind of came together over a very long drive. I think that goes back to the trip to Milwaukee in the car. That's where that first became a thing. Mage first edition, it was... The version that I read when I walked in the door was fascinating and it had so much possibility and it needed a little bit more accessibility, I guess. It won my heart and then we put effort into making it something that other people could see those possibilities in as well. One of the main points about Vampire and Werewolf, Mm -hmm. when you opened the book and you read the character classes, everybody in the gaming group I was in in college, you know, reading through it, there was something you could take away and say, I'm going to play that character. And here, Kathy's point was suddenly shifted by Satoros producing a folio containing a draft of Mage 1E. Phil has a black folder, like a, you know, a school folder with pockets. Mm-hmm. Very dusty. <laughs> Very dusty. It is bulging because it contains the original draft he was given of Mage the Ascension First Edition. Printed okay. out on the, the machines at the office. I, I have my copy as well, which we both kept those. It doesn't surprise me. There was a bit of conversation here about White Wolf marketing material that had some visual displays, which doesn't quite transfer to audio. So I jump to the next question. Where did Amanda come from? Uh, Amanda is repeatedly recognized as one of the most compelling characters in Mage. And the other one you mentioned was Senex. In fact, I am going to break an NDA I am over under. And for an upcoming Mage book, there was talk about having a character sheet for Senex. And the character sheet was going to consist of, he's fucking Senex. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that is uh, both because Mage has so... Uh, not to say that Mage doesn't have lore, but it doesn't have a lot necessarily of metaplot. It doesn't have the big list of here are the 200 mages and what they're doing in every city. It has the it has a few people that that kind of witness the Tellurian, and its lore is all of human history, which makes it both the thinnest and deepest of the uh, the possible source materials. But just the the tale of some broken people trying to fix reality and depending on how you play it, succeeding is I think one of the most compelling stories the old world of darkness has ever seen and that exists in urban fantasy. Where did that come from? Uh, That came from my initial read-through of Mage and the character I would play if I were going to play a game. I was going to do something, because I wrote Amanda, Mm -hmm. I have never seen the movie La Femme Nikita because I knew what 
the concept of La Femme Nikita was, you know, an assassin who turned to the light side. But I never wanted to be influenced by the movie or anything of it. Just, okay, here is, I'm going to do an assassin who turns to the light side. And that's where she came from. One had decided, okay, she's going to be an assassin. Therefore, she needs to be assassinating somebody in Act 1. And in Act 2, we need to make this thing that's described in a philosophical fashion in the book, very philosophically, before the all-hands-on-deck, you know, transforming a Stuart amazing concept into something people could get their, their imaginations into a little bit more easily. Awakening. Well, what does that look like? What does that sound like, smell like, taste like? And then now she's joined the light side. What does that look like? How is that different than what she was doing at the beginning of the book? And they're all cliffhangers. Actually, I've never written anything for Amanda that was not a cliffhanger because we only had a thousand words to do that with. Senec came from the fact that I had two years of high school Latin and I knew that Senex meant old man and we're going to have somebody who's going to be the mentor for this girl that he just showed up in my head and he looked a bit like Morgan Freeman. Okay, just that that is good to formally have in the canon because I'm like, this kind of <laughs> looks like Morgan Freeman. Am I doing that thing where thank no, you? <laughs> I, in my head, at, even before anyone had illustrated him. He looked like Morgan Freeman because Morgan Freeman taught me how to read. Also, he'd just been in Robin Hood as the Saracen and uh, been in a couple other things where the wise narrator voice. Well, there you go. Morgan Freeman. If you had given a, been given a chance to end any of those stories or extend Amanda's narrative, do you have any idea of uh, where you would have liked to have seen her go? Oh, actually, yeah. And this is going to be another one of these things where possibly people will hate me after this podcast for not having followed through more on of these things. Back when we were turning out lots and lots of trilogies, I had my concepts for the Amanda trilogy. I also had backstory trilogy for Hesha. Hesha here is Hesha Ruhadza from Vampire, The Masquerade, The Signature Setite. That was never done. Yeah, it was going to be set in Bombay in the colonial area. It was going to be set in Baltimore in the 1920s. And it was going to be set in Berkeley, which is where Elizabeth goes with what's his name Jordan after the events of Bravnos, okay. he she's rescued. Different line, got it. <laughs> or something, yeah. Oh, this is all that was all vampire stuff. That I spend all this time working on Amanda for game books, and then yeah, I wind up writing novels for vampire. Each of the stories that appeared in the beginnings of the books, I actually, with the idea of doing an eventual trilogy in mind, I finished the chapters. There's a story of how the second seven and Amanda get out of Anne's place. That one's finished. There's the story of Mitzi and her apprentice at, at the gate in Caron. That one, I've got the rest of it. Most of the ones that appeared in first edition and second edition, I have the rest of the story. It's, you know, what happens between the last one of those that I did and the events in Ascension. That's where the big gap is. Euthanatos was a very large chunk of the middle of the story because because Mitzi and her apprentice are such that thread of redeeming some of the crazy stuff we did in first edition with the house of helicar was part of the driving force behind amanda's entire storyline after phil and i drove in a car to milwaukee and spent the entire time talking mage and amanda and so forth if you ever want them to see the light of day, the Storyteller's Vault is an amazing thing, and that can that can very much exist. And if you just want to hand the words over to someone else and have it turn into something that can be sold to the world and you get half of it, that exists. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. Here we had a side conversation on the Storyteller's Vault, which I cut for time. 
And so Mitzi's apprentice, Julia, and it only occurred to me a couple of years ago that the Euthanatos had this weird, slightly modified, mage-inflected, death-focused version of Charlie's Angels, where you had these three remarkably capable women, like, getting notes from this ominous voice that we almost never actually get to see. And that is both the most and least mage thing that I've ever wanted to run as a chronicle or one-shot. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that that would totally work. That and the second seven as the Avengers, yeah. particularly once Amanda joins. Man, some of the other things that I wish I could fill in, you know, second seven were named after a different seven who were post-fragile path, but well before the modern era. So that would have been, you know, mage, the Renaissance level of stuff. There's a vault in my mind that I just don't go in anymore if I can help it. And that's where all of this is. So I overwrite. When I write, like continually, I overwrite. The White Wolf editors and line developers did fantastic jobs cutting stuff out. But I mean, there's an entire, all right, this is a little anecdote, how much I overwrite at times. And also the mid 90s. <laughs> so I had one of my cassette tapes was the War of the Worlds, the rock concept album. This is a real thing. Everybody go out and listen to it. It's bizarre and amazing. And the frigate, the Thunder Child, I believe is the name of the frigate. The song for that is fantastic. When we had to have this trial and we needed a witness to exactly how bad are the House of Helicar, we had to have somebody who had visited their realm in the, the horizon. Somebody who had been there, seen that, done that, escaped. And that was an ethernaut, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, but he had red hair. I remember because I based him off of a friend I had in high school. He had been on the ether ship Thunderchild. Michael Fitzgerald. And, oh my gosh. <laughs> I do mage the podcast. I'm just saying. Well, okay. Yes. <laughs> Whereas I never read my own work. So I'll go back and I'll flip through things by other writers who worked on mage or vampire, or anything else. But it's a little strange going back and seeing things that I've written. So even when I was working on trying to get the band back together for M20, I was really only going back to the published material and these extensions of it that I'd written. I was going back to find out, you know, what did I call this person? And, you know, did I reveal Julia and so-and-so were in a relationship together? Did I reveal this? Did I say that or whatever? Because a lot of the plans for the characters, I can't remember the name of Julia's girlfriend. The point being, there was a whole bunch of backstory that never made it in. There was an entire chapter's worth of the story of Mike Fitzgerald and his ship being marooned at the House of Helicar's Chantry and what happens to them. And that was summed up in, I think, two or three paragraphs when the book came out. There was a special edition if you attended Dragon Con or Gen Con that year. I laid out the chapter and we printed it and people could come to the booth and get a stapled together copy of the missing section, The Wreck of the Thunder Child. That would have been part of this Amanda trilogy as well, so we had a hard limit on the on the page count for the splat books and it could only be 72 pages and and one of the other things that Kathy really deserves credit for here is Kathy was worked amazing feats of layout magic to be able to to fit these ridiculous word counts that I would give her for the for the mage books and then, you know, cram them into, especially for the splat books. Most, the, the vampire splat books were like 15,000, 17,000, 
the werewolf ones were like 15. The mage ones were regularly ran between 20 and I think the most we got was, was 25 on the Order of Hermes first edition. We had this balancing act of trying to keep the text legible, use the art, and yet fit as much text as possible into 72 pages. In the case of Euthanatos, Kathy had written this fantastic story, and I still needed to fit game mechanics in there, because otherwise people would go, but where, where are the spells? Where are the things? So we ended up after, you know, some discussion, taking that section out, cutting it. I summarized it, and I think, you know, like a paragraph or something like that. And then I don't remember, I think it was just we brainstormed up the idea of just printing it up and giving it, giving it away so that it would actually be in circulation, that the story wouldn't go to waste but that we would still have, you know, be able to, to fit, you know, 72 pages. There was a rumor that went around occasionally still does that it was, you know, that it was left out during layout. No, it wasn't left out. We couldn't fit it in the damn book. The book would have been um, about 15 pages longer and we weren't allowed to do that. So one of the very few creative constraints we had in those days was the word counts. This is back in the days of, you know, offset printing and so forth, where you had to, we had certain established books that had to be a certain number of, of uh, pages and you couldn't go beyond that because you could only release so many of this type of book per year, only the, 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 a certain amount of this type book per year. You couldn't do what you can do you know, with, with uh, print on demand. And so we had for a little while there, we, we kind of had the mage team. Uh, we had me, Kathy, and Cynthia Summers, who was pretty much the main editor. And we had a system. We were just you know, bang, bang, bang. And the books went... The, the, the books that we did together went a whole lot quicker and a whole lot easier than if we were working with somebody else laying it out or somebody else editing it. Also, frankly, consistent overproduction made Phil a little less popular with the other designers um, yep. in the production department. Mm -hmm. And since I had skin in the game, you know, if this if this doesn't fit, we're going to have to cut stuff that I love, written by some of the best people I could think of. you, you got to make it fit. I will reveal on this podcast that my clan novels are a little bit longer than the average clan novel. <laughs> uh, if you check the margins on the printed versions, I cheated a lot um, <laughs> to make them fit. But the work stands up. Uh, I know, Kat, you were saying that you hadn't you hadn't reread it, you know, reread those books. When I went through and reread the whole Mage series while working on Mage 20, your work still is remarkable, especially given the quality of writing in role-playing game books in the early 90s. And if you ever want to make more of it, we can make it happen. Uh, there's a, yep. a, a thriving community content program, and a number of the line authors have used it as a way of saying, hey, there wasn't enough space for this. I'm going to put it out there. Give me two bucks, and it will exist in perpetuity, and you get some royalties off of it. I was just going to say, not some royalties. You get 50% in perpetuity. As long as it's selling, you get 50% of what it sells for. Storyteller's Vault has been really good to me. I highly recommend it, and I will gladly work with you on anything you want to put up there. I had no idea. I did know from one of my favorite podcasts. Okay, so I'm subscribed to about like 208 podcasts at the moment, but that's because <laughs> I a bunch of them. You know, if, if you're listening to anything from Wondery, whenever they come out with something new, they put it on every single feed that they have. I only keep one Wondery podcast that I'm subscribed to at any given moment. There's a podcast, a guy named 
David S. Deere, who really liked oh, Numenera. Monty Cook. Yes. So I haven't seen the game book. I had know nothing really about, know nothing about it except that this guy, David S. Deere, he does a podcast where he's just narrative of this character. So this guy really likes this game and uh, gives a shout out to the fact that there's a, um, that community content is a thing. That's how I found out that community content was a thing. Here we had a wide-ranging conversation on podcast recommendations, which I have also cut for time. Your mention of space brings in another thing that you had done with the line, which is in the Book of Worlds, all that marvelous stuff that you did with the Shard Realms in the Book of Worlds. Yes, there should be other planets, and we should be able to travel to them, and they should be like they were in 1950 science fiction, because I grew up with Asimov, Clark, and Heinlein, and a whole bunch of other people. If I had discovered Cordwainer Smith when we <laughs> were in the 90s, there would have been a lot of Cordwainer Smith influence <laughs> on the world of darkness. If people out there are not familiar with it, you can get, I think, all of Cordwainer Smith now in two hardbacks. They're amazing. Very technology so advanced that it resembles magic. And it just fascinating. Here's one of the things I'm curious about. Where did the Shard Realms, uh, that, that whole concept of the Shard Realms and the Shade Realms come from? Because that was one of those, I actually had a hard time wrapping my head around it until you and I talked about it. And that I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm like, okay, well, that's a neat idea. You write that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hang on. I'm going to grab my copy of the first draft. Ooh, one of the first things on the top of it is questions for Phil. Is one of those questions is the planet and the shard realm actually the same thing? That's my top three mage argument. If you settle that now, I can end this podcast uh, and I can say I am done. I would say no. There's the thing, right? Which is the planet, which NASA can send spacecraft to and land on and find, you know, no life, all the rest of it. And then in the Umbra, wherever, there is the shadow of that planet, which doesn't always match. For instance... Pluto. It, it, it's been demoted since I wrote. Would it have a chapter anymore? I don't know. Or not a chapter, but it would have its own entry. I don't know. But what you would get if you went to the surface of Pluto out there would be different than what NASA would find if they, they dropped a, a lander on it. Thank you. I think the characters in Ascension are actually standing on the surface of the realm of entropy. And it is not so cold that they shatter yeah. the moment they get there. Here, there was a brief show and tell of some of the design work that Kathy had done. But I, I, I'm sorry to say this feels like ancient history or the stories your grandparents tell that you're like, Papa, what was it like taking a horse to school? Um. <laughs> okay. I am a serious history nerd. Like okay. I have a small museum of insurance and financial services. I work at a, I now work at a place that's a trade association for insurance financial services and long story of how I got involved in that but I'm such a nerd for history that I have a small museum in the next room with hmm. like exhibit boards and captions and and things you know life insurance being marketed to the lady of the house so I've got just a bunch of sewing notions that are advertisements for life insurance I'm a serious history nerd so if, if somehow I have now become old enough that I am history here, Kathy shows one of the envelopes from the old White Wolf office that had a bit of scandalous art on it. I am willing to share. Oh my Ooh. God, that that envelope! Oh my God, the envelope Canadian the Canadian Postal Service hated. <laughs> really? Why? Because 
naked. Oh, naked. Well, when I would send maybe. those to Canada, they would not reach because there I had one or two artists, uh, rather writers in Canada, and I would send them the red lines in that envelope, and they would never reach there. And we figured out that it was because Canadian Postal, the Canadian Postal Service, would confiscate them. So I started sending them in other envelopes, and they would get there. But sorry, yeah, I just I haven't seen one of those envelopes in ages. <laughs> this is actually addressed to me in my college dorm. Dear Phil, here it is. I hope it works. May not be the most blackout ending there ever was, but I trust it'll hook them pretty good anyway. It's spell-checked, but I don't have a word processor that will convert to ASCII. I probably mean ASCII. So someone, probably you if I remember SOP down there, will have to type the whole damn thing again. I also took a word count minus the bold capped note. It's 1,000 16 words. Hope it fits. <laughs> Everything that happened to the earthly stuff I did come up with a way to rationalize in GameStop. The outer space horizon stuff is completely off the cuff. It should work, <laughs> but I didn't know how large the floating chantries could get. I'm thinking that if the umbral realms roughly correspond to stellar bodies, shards to planets, etc., then the horizon realms would be like asteroids. This one would be big, probably even a Jovian moon like Ganymede or Io. I think those are Jovian. They could be Saturnine. Horizon Realm, and Horizon Realm well attached to whichever shard realm has the Euthanatos Oracle, Master of Flowers, High Avatar, whatever. If Pluto were that oracle's domain slash hiding place, then Pluto's moon, I think, Charon, would be a marvelous place for a mostly Euthanatos chantry. Also, the time dilation I was hoping for might be more easily explained on a planet that has such a slow year compared with Earth slash Gaia. The power levels involved in setting up a portal to and from shouldn't be too much trouble. I think the old man is really going to be a kick-ass, take-named member of his profession. Lots of cool friends, too, like whomever set up the Earth end of the portal with that circle. Now for the questions from the peanut gallery. What <laughs> people have been asking me most about mage. <laughs> Okay, this, the year is 1993. Can you switch off foci within a tradi particular tradition to adjust for regional or cultural differences? Say, a Japanese dream speaker with origami instead of crystals. Will any percussion instrument do, or must one stay with stick-on-hide drums? Will there be more orphan sex described in the player's guide? Sorry, I'm sure you're getting enough of these questions through the mail already. Call me if you have any questions, and don't hesitate to adjust the piece to pieces, if necessary, to meet the deadline or ideological constraints. Just send me a copy once it's in print, okay? Also, a check would be nice if you can corner Steve or Ben long enough to work it into their budget. Say <laughs> hi to everybody for me. I'll send along the Marauders piece this time next week. Wishing you much luck at the Madhouse. I just find uh, it interesting that your questions for Phil in the intervening 30 years have still not been answered by and large. <laughs> and I feel like that's a commentary oh. on it. Because people, I think every few weeks I'm like, were there ever any more orphan groups? And like, not really. They, they keep mentioning them, but. Well, actually, the questions for Phil are on the outside of the envelope. That was my letter to Phil. Contract says no less than. How about more than? How close should I shoot? And apparently your answer was shoot damn close. There must be something about Senex or Mercy in the writer's notes because I've got a thing saying, wait a minute, Senex killed Mercy. Marauders, so far, no too much. Will it be okay to just write out everything for draft and figure out which bits you want? Final? This is the Marauders piece. So I almost wish I hadn't gone down that rabbit hole. And yet, and yet, it's rather curious, you know, this sort of life. And it begins by talking about Robert Davenport. Did I mention to you that Robert Davenport makes a sidelong appearance in um, Technocracy Reloaded? 
No, I did not know that. What I did with the preludes in the Mage 20 books, there's a running story where it turns out that Leanne Milner, who was Lynn Davis's character in Cult of Ecstasy Revised, Leanne Milner became one of the signature characters of the Revised Era, and Secret Agent John Courage, which of course, Brian. I ended up in the <coughs> in the prelude of, of Mage 20, saying that the two of them had a back history where Leanne's awakening had basically resulted in her painting her abusive boyfriend across the walls of the apartment they were living in. And the men in black get called, or in this case, the man and the woman in black get called. And it's John Courage and, and someone else. And he's like, there's talent in this one. It's potentially really powerful. It's potentially really dangerous. I could bring her back for processing and completely destroy that. Or I could turn her over to somebody I trust who can point her talent in the right direction. So it turns out that the two of them have had this, basically an alliance has been, you know, kind of running in the background of the whole, oh, technocracy evil, oh, traditions evil. And through that all that the two of them have kind of had this, you know, it's not like a romantic bond or anything, but it's a, we serve something higher than the group that we belong to. They have both realized at the, by the beginning of Mage 20, they both begun to realize that something is rotten in both the traditions and the technocracy, and they team up. The preludes, the main Mage 20 books, have been following John Courage and Leanne as they explore the darker corners of their respective and each other's respective groups while recruiting allies, and one of those allies is Robert Davenport. And in the prelude for Technocracy Reloaded, they spring the trap on one of the corrupt elements of the technocracy to both take out that particular cell and to get in information. But basically, John Courage sets himself up to be captured, winds up getting captured, turns the tables on them, and part of the turning tables is a psychic link that Leanne, John Courage, Robert Davenport, brother Oliver Lyons, who is Rochelle's character from the Templars, and uh, Jinx, who is a character I created, and Agent Tiberius. I can't forget Agent Tiberius. Agent Tiberius is an uplifted dog in Gods and Monsters, which another thing that Kathy deserves credit for is the whole idea of the uh, taking the bygones out while humanity is busy conquering the globe. The idea of that certain people, especially among the Butcher Street regulars, are ferrying the um, the, the bygones out. out. That's Kathy's. Okay. Here, Kathy pulled out a piece of promotional work that she had done and kind of gives its backstory. Yeah. The first visual art that I really... My dad brought home a calligraphy set for himself and when I was about 12, I think. It became my calligraphy set pretty quickly. I did my first illuminated manuscript kind of piece in high school and won a prize for it at uh, my church art festival thing. When we started doing the time settings for vampire and then from age and so on, if there's an illuminated manuscript piece in it, it's probably me. Uh -huh. um, one of the things that I would still put in my portfolio these days, if I were not kind of in love with my current job, hang on a moment, this is the book of ads. So when we did Vampire of the Dark Ages. Oh yeah, I remember that. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about those. This is a piece of advertising. It is also an in-game prop. It's all illuminated manuscript. This is the cover of my the Irish skin drum I scanned in on Scanner at the Office. The text is typeset, but 
the illumination and things. This is written on canvas. It was real canvas that I really wrote on and put binding on. And this is Beware the Vampire, for its strength is the wild beast. <laughs> and so it's an illuminated manuscript piece. I did all kinds of research on the styles of the correct time period. History nerd, even then. Yeah. This is from a time period where things were written on purple vellum. So I got a piece of watercolor paper. I soaked it in purple watercolor, let it dry, and then wrote on it in gold. Um, and the gloss is set on the computer. The, the burn mark is real because I got some matches or a lighter or something and burned the piece of paper, which I actually did in the office. Wait, probably everybody thought that the coffee pot had just boiled dry again. Uh, what is this in? Sorry. Oh, uh, Mage Second. Okay, got it. Yeah, the, pre the her prelude for Mage Second. Has anybody out there ever checked the lab student and longitude of the scene set on the ship? It's in the Bermuda Triangle. At one point on the ship still, I think, there is a mechanical attacking machine. It, it, it's big and copper and spherical, and it's bright copper, so it was a clockwork orange. Interesting. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that one. <laughs> I have to say something about writing back in the 90s. This is before Wikipedia, okay? So there are a lot of times where these days if I were writing, I would, I would go online and I would get like Latin translation or people would maybe research South America enough to know that they don't speak Spanish in Brazil and that there are no subways in New Orleans, eh. um, stuff like that. We didn't have those kinds of research facilities that nowadays you just go on the internet and there's the answer. If you want to know something like, well, are there traffic lights in this particular city? You know, you can't get online and instantly connect with somebody from that city and find out. Part of the fun of working at that time period was discovering we'd made a horrible mistake in book X, okay? <laughs> yeah. And having to figure out, well, are we gonna fix it? How do we retcon this? There's nothing we could do about poor Brazil or the subways in New Orleans, but uh, errors in translation, like Pors, Pelagius, Mercurius. I, I put a chantry on the Shard Realm, Mercury, and there was no go on Google and, and get the translation of the thing you want to say in Latin. So instead of saying the Fortress College of Mercury, it was the Lucky College of Mercury. So I had to invent an illiterate stonemason much later when I had discovered <laughs> that I'd gotten that incorrect. It's also, everybody's work was on individual computers and individual disks. So there was no big library of files anywhere that you could go and, and find out. Have we used Rasputin in, in, in a book before? <laughs> so we made Rasputin a vampire and then we'd made him a werewolf and it became a thing, like a meme. <laughs> We're going to put Rasputin in every single book someplace, <laughs> uh, every single game line. A lot of that is because of the limitations of the time. You can do a, a search through all of your files to find something out like that. Yeah, I don't know how you would possibly write a book without access to the White Wolf Wiki. And the fact that you were able to do that, and that's an online resource that is only 16 years old, is frankly amazing to me. <laughs> so it would be nice if you hadn't invented the idea of reality bubbles. American politics would have been much more straightforward, but I guess... <laughs> I didn't hey, invent those. Yeah, really. can't hold you personally uh, responsible for it. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, that's it has been. And I mean, we, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but it has been so weird 
to be, you know, writing for or and or managing a game about warring realities these last five years? A lot of things have changed. 9-11 hadn't happened when we wrote Euthanatos. 9-11 hadn't happened when Lost Traditions Ali Bateen and Taftani went out where there's a section talking about how great the Taliban is. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'll that, bet Craig's loving that one. <laughs> yeah, that came out in I think April of two thousand and one. So that was that was real tight. And then there was a mention about the NWO's fondness for Afghanistan that, that came out in the same year. But meh, the little bits of things like oh, by the way, there's one uh, shard realm per planet, and they're not the same thing. And oh, by the way, we originally had plans for the Oracle of Entropy to be named what was it, the King of Flowers, the, the Prince of Flowers, or something like that? Uh, I think Master of Flowers was Ma actually like part of the House of Helicar thing. Oh, okay, so that was like yeah. a title or something. Right well, at time that I'd written this, I think the only books available were things like the name of the one with the House of Helicar in it. It came out, it was one of the ones, it, it was so early that Bill hadn't developed all of it. That book was almost stream of consciousness. We didn't really have anything much to work with. And I had a lot of big ideas and I had a lot of things that I was like, ah, this isn't working for me. Or what can we, how can we make this, this weird idea that, that occurred in Mage, how can we make it actually work? And again, Kathy you know, was part of part of those discussions and, you know, Brian Campbell and, and Sam Chubb and Bill Bridges. But most of that was my first job as I walked in the door <laughs> as the mage developer was to talk Steve Brown out of quitting <laughs> the book of Chantries because he was like, I have a deadline and it's coming up and I have no idea what I'm supposed to write. So he and I brainstormed the book up on the phone. <laughs> I had I had been in the office less than 10 minutes and I'm on the phone with Steve Brown talking him out of quitting and and we were on the phone for two or three hours back in the days when you were getting charged by the minute for long distance brainstorming up what the book was going to be like because we had no idea there was no outline there was nothing and we were we were making it up as we as we went along and then when he got me his pieces and Kathy got me her pieces and Jim Moore got me his pieces, which basically the Samuel Hayde adventure in the back came because Jim Moore had, had come in and was visiting the office. Bill or Andrew, I forget which, had jokingly told me, well, you know, you have Samuel Hayde has to be in all the books. So where are you going to put him in this one? I'm like, I don't know, Jim, let's figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and we brainstormed I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hiring you now. You're writing the last chapter in, in Book of Chantries. And so we were throwing all this stuff together, basically stream of consciousness. And that's where I, I know part of the conversations that, that Kathy and I had was, how do we take a group that is portrayed in first edition mage and in the Book of Chantries as a bunch of sadistic murderers? And how do we make them part of the, the, the team of Okay, good guys is relative because we're also talking about witches that sacrifice people to trees. And we're also talking about reality hackers who skim money off people's bank accounts. And we're talking about cranky old wizards, you know, who blow you up if you if you in their in their name. And what is this group doing in here in the first place? And how do we make them not complete assholes? That's where a lot of the Senex and Amanda stuff comes from and where the idea of the House of Helicar being the outliers in the Athanatos being a group that has taken the idea of, well, I have the right to, you know, I have the right to kill you for the greater good, where they become the group that they, the rest of the tradition has to, has to hunt down. It's the Old Testament of Mage. Uh, when when, when <laughs> yeah. Jesus was born, a lot of work was done to justify, oh yeah, this to this prophecy from Daniel, totally him. 
three days, <laughs> Friday to Sunday. That's three days. I'm bad at math. Yeah, I mean, it's even a proud tradition. And uh, comment from the tat. Please tell these folks, second edition was maybe the most important forma- book in my formation as a person. That introductory fiction was the beginning of a lifelong obsession. Aw, oh, wow. thank you. What are some of the folks saying or asking? What are your opinions? Do you think Mage should have gotten more crossover with the rest of the World of Darkness lines? And follow-up question, thanks for making my favorite two game lines. It was frequently difficult to do crossovers, particularly with the first edition stuff. People tried very hard. A lot of things in the World of Darkness are a little strange because from the point of view of each game book, that group of people, you know, has had more effect on history than anybody else. And, you know, this has shaped the destiny of mankind and... You know, vampires are behind every historical thing that ever happened. No, werewolves and and Gaia and and the battle between the worm and the wild and everything. That's what shaped the universe. And, you know, in Mage, well, everybody shaped the universe. So it's difficult to cross over in some of those aspects. It was also fundamentally all of these groups that they were the most important things in the universe had incredibly small effect on human history because everything that happened in the real world, the Statue of Liberty still being there, Mm -hmm. even if she was a little bit, she didn't get her facelift in the 80s and whatever it was we used to put into the beginning of the books explaining how the world of darkness was just like ours, but a little bit different. So all of those vampires' machinations canceled themselves out completely because we still had modern day match modern day same thing with the traditions and the technocracy and the marauders and the fanity all that sort of stuff it all cancels out you're still you're still in the 90s and it gosses in and it makes no difference fundamentally everything cancels out about how much effort is wasted in the world of darkness people are still people yeah, and, and it raises some interesting problems because if it's like our reality, but slightly worse over time, that worse has to get worser. So I, I do kind of like the narrative idea that the point at which things got worse wasn't that long ago, that every table gets to kind of pick the point where things were going along fine and then something broke. And then at some point we started living in that broken reality seemingly, and uh, we need to talk to, to the management at some point. But uh, <laughs> uh, first, another difficult question. Uh, 100,000 thanks for all your outstanding work on the game. Uh, that means so much to me and so many. And also, are there any areas of the game that you feel that you never got a chance to explore uh, a book that you would have liked to have produced or alternatively, a topic that you think should always be just in the hands of the storyteller? So the books that I wish that had happened are the fiction. I wish that there had been an Amanda trilogy. I wish that I had gotten to do Hesh's backstory. I had started working on it before I went out in the woods and read the Ascension writer's notes and discovered it was all going away. So the first one was going to be in Bombay and it was, I have all this research material on Bombay in the 1600s and it was going to explain, you know, how Hesha met Eric and why Hesha's last name is from Georgia, like the former Soviet state, right? Instead of anywhere near where why on earth is he called that when he's not from anywhere near there that sort of thing and that's because back in the day you got your exotic names out of a phone book and you didn't know anything about the people you could not go on facebook and find people from the appropriate area and figure out what their last name was so is that is that the the setite hesha ruhadza or someone Mm -hmm. else okay got it that's the setite hesha ruhadza because maids has a hesha too hesha morning glade yeah Two different characters. Yeah, Hesha Morningglade was mine. And I didn't come up with Hesha. He came out of 
Vampire Second Edition, I think. And, and when I got laid off from White Wolf the second time, they said, we're killing off the fiction department, but would you like to write two novels? So I did that. Not a severance package exactly, but it was, you know, they needed someone to write two of these novels. So I stepped in and, and Ash was supposed to be the main character. So the story is about his background and, and to finally wrap up Elizabeth's story. And Amanda, you know, a lot of things would have happened with them in the second seven and the fact that in the apothecary's uh, shop. Oh, um, uh, it's the one with the, the, the smaller traditions. Yeah, the Book of Crafts. That's what it opens up. She kills uh, okay. it's the Children of Knowledge member, or the uh, Richard Somnitz, or is that a different person? That's exactly who it was. Okay. Um, she kills Richard Somnitz, who's a member of the House of Helicar. And because she did that in this place, that was associated with these people and she winds up meeting people again and having to flee the house of Helicar with people. <laughs> but that was going to go places. Oh, we really should have had a, an entire game line from the point of view of the sapient Gerboas. <laughs> I, I loved writing the book of beasts um, before this became like the live podcast when we were just warming up. I, I held up to the book. This is the TH white, the Book of Beasts, which is a mm. medieval bestiary, that was a huge source for. Look at yeah, there's some amazing stuff in this book, and we filed the serial numbers off of it. And because it's literally a medieval bestiary, it's a translation from a Latin bestiary of the 12th century, <laughs> and uh, it's fascinating what people actually thought at the time. They thought that pelicans cut themselves. And that was the fluid that the baby pelicans would drink. It's actually, they regurgitate from their crop things. This was held up as the epitome of self-sacrificing motherhood for years and years and years, because that's what they thought. There's a lot of stories like that in that book. Because I, I, I remember you had the sapient Jeroboas in Book of, uh, Book of Madness, but I think you had actually introduced the, the fire-breathing Jeroboa in Ascension's Right Hand. I think Ma Matthew Kedelka, I think, did the illustration for a fire-breathing Jeroboa in uh, Ascension's Right Hand. Amanda sees them in, as she's walking the line back to the Chantry. I guess it was the Book of Worlds. She's walking a line back, and she loses the line. And Oh, they're so cute. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting because I always thought that the uh, the mice that that are seen in Book of Worlds were the were the twice eaten. I, I always thought that that was those were the uh, the mice whose curiosity had them consumed uh, from uh, Axis Mundi Book of Spirits. But good to know that those are Jerboas. Oh well, they may have been. It has been a few years yeah. <laughs> One since or I two. a couple looked weeks at the ago. source material for this uh, stuff. Another question that came up was, do you think there is space in Mage for a, a different interpretation of the dynamic faction? Do you think the the version of Marauders that kind of initially came out should exist along with where they went in 2E? Or do you think those two are mutually exclusive? Or would that complicate things too much? One of the nice things about Mage is there's room for everything in it. Arguably uh, too much room for things. But... Well, yes, that does make it a bit... <laughs> difficult there's a steep learning curve it's um and here i'm going to admit i don't think i've actually ever played mage uh there was this thing very noticeable in the gaming industry of people not playing the game that they themselves worked on as i said everybody at wizards of the coast played white wolf games and everybody at white wolf played you know D D and stuff so um, and magic all the magic games in the uh in the meeting room 
Yes. Well, it helped that Rich Thomas was yeah. the man behind Mr. Stuffy. I think when I met him the first time, I said, uh, Red Elemental Blast. And he's like, yeah. And then he gave me an interview anyway, so I guess he can't be all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. Uh, another hard-hitting question. Uh, Kathy, so much. Thank you for your work. Uh, Amanda is one of my favorite characters in Mage. What do you think Amanda and Senex would be up to right about now? Um, and the answer may be um, find out more in Kathy's upcoming Mage book, he said with his fingers crossed. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no I know what they were doing at the beginning of Mage 20 because I had made an outline of that. I think that... Senex, unbeknownst to most of the characters in the world of darkness, Senex is the guardian of the ashes and the egg. At the end of the sixth age, the Celestine Phoenix lays an egg and burns. And beginning of the seventh age, the egg hatches. The world is reborn. Lots of characters mysteriously haven't aged in 20 years. And the opening for the Amanda piece from age 20 was Amanda waking up on the floor of a burning warehouse, wooden floor of a, a warehouse in fire everyone being the world is back the world is different the egg is hatched but which may have been why pluto was demoted to a planetoid you know the thanatos and, and senex's faction in particular have a great deal of experience routing out corrupted members of their allies because of the house of helicar i think that they would be active in the they would be active in finding out you know what is corrupted and where in the traditions and the technocracy the the theme of the technocracy and the traditions both waking up and realizing too many of their members are saying hail hydra you know that 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 is they would be active in that they have a purpose that was pretty much it they, they would have that purpose and they could i think do a lot of good and get in a lot of trouble <laughs> team up with people that you know no one ever thought that they would team up with by now, who knows, the second seven might be the seven, second 19 and have like all kinds of technocracy members in it. Want counterintelligence mages. Not a bad place to go looking for them. Well, thank you so much for sharing that bit. I mean, anytime, uh, as, as I said, there's so little mage, mage qua mage lore. We never got the huge run of novels or what have you. We just had these bits of introductory fiction and just these, these tastes of it that anything that adds to that can, can appreciably make the world seemingly larger. Unfortunately, I can't remember how much of everything I revealed in the, the little snippets. Um, <laughs> the extended sections of chapters tended to be at least five times the amount that was shown in the book. There's a lot in there. There was an elaborate backstory. It's just kept most of it to myself. It was the World of Darkness was supposed to all of the games were losing games, you know, where the longer you play it, the more insane you go in Call of Cthulhu. The longer you play it in the longer you play vampire, the more of a monster you become. So that was the world of darkness. And I had, you know, Kathy's annex of mild dimness, right? Yeah. It was, there should always be hope and there should be a way to get through it. But it's the sort of hope, sort of hope where you've got a space marine in an air duct with thermal grenade. <laughs> that kind of hope is what you get mostly get in the world of darkness. I saw the movie Aliens for the first time over at the, on Laserdisc at <clears throat> the Chris McDonough's when we were doing this big movie movie time that was the first time i'd ever seen it and it was amazing because he had the director's cut and everything it was a serious movie buff and laser disc it had lasers <laughs> <laughs> it came late into my life but had a huge impact on me so by late into my life of course that was like the early 20s so um not really that late 
but compared to a lot of other things. I remember that party because it was it was the the end of the world party uh, where Chris had was doing a marathon of of James Cameron movies, the director's cut of James Cameron movies on that phenomenal subwoofer speaker system that he had and, and the big TV. I, I remember I was drinking a bottle of Le Fin du Monde because to in order to celebrate the end of the world. <laughs> I can't remember who was sitting behind me and, and after watching the movie, the best thing about it, because he's seen it before, the best thing about it was watching me watch the movie because I was scared and I was, you know, we had these folding chairs and I was like uh, huddled together with my my arms around my knees and, you know, flinching every time anything happened because it's all jump scares and I didn't know where they were yet. That was cool. It was also Josh Timbrook introducing anime would give a film school appreciation level intro to Porco Rosso, Porco Rosso. Um, I yeah, think. Porco, Porco Rosso yeah. Yeah. That, those kinds of things. One of the cool things was the, the diversity of genre that everybody was into, you know, that was we were all dirt poor and working crazy hours and that kind of thing. But it was also it was also a place where, hey, you know, we're going to go have the production meeting at um, the Chinese place on um, Memorial Drive. And then after we do that, we're all going to go across to the comic book store next to the used used books place. We would come back to the office with their comic books and used books, which that is where I, I got a copy of Jericho's named after Walpurgis Three by Mike Resnick. When the universe's most evil being becomes the target of the ultimate assassin, will an entire planet pay the price? Jericho, spelled with a J, uh, like walls of, is um, one of the main characters in it. And so when I needed an assassin, he's the assassin in the book. I needed an assassin name. It became Ar Alexander Jericho, spelled as the French name. G-E-R-I-C-A-U-L-T. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it had the same sound, but completely different. And the two characters are nothing alike, but it was a reference to uh, the Mike Resnick book. I guess that might be counted as an Easter egg. I don't know. You have shared so much. Uh, and it's, is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, kind of gracefully go off? I'd like to thank people who have found me on social media over the years and written nice things because I have not done conventions since ages. And when I was going to conventions, it was Dragon Con because it was in town. And eventually I didn't qualify to be a guest at Dragon Con because what had I done for anybody lately? People who've reached out on social media or back when I had a, a live web page. It's nice to know it's not forgotten. So, so thanks to everybody who, who's done that. And Everybody who thought about doing it but couldn't find me or uh, lots of folks. There are a lot of people that I would say if I met them all kinds of awesome things, but that I would never reach out and say that sort of stuff. People like that also are awesome. Had other folks tell me that those folks were out there. It was, was kind of nice. Kathy, thank you so much. Satyrus as oh. well. Thank you for uh, making this happen. Thank you for accepting our invite. This has been a much more positive experience than... Oh. I was afraid it, it, it might have been. And we got the part where I almost where I almost started crying again. We got that done with fairly early and uh and, and that's good. And I really enjoyed cracking open the box of old draft, finding questions for Phil on the top of it. <laughs> uh I would totally do this again and go like more layers down in, in, in the thing. That would so. be wonderful. And Satoros, thank you, as I said, for making this happen and for joining and for supporting Triacon. It's a great cause. So yeah. thanks for letting me help you help other people. This has been Mage the Podcast that works hard to never be chuggy. Our executive producers who keep us from being basic are Josh H., John Magnuson, Jenna F., John H., Christopher Zach, 
William M., Neil Patterson, Christopher P., Buck Farmer. Buck has backed us at the Oracle level, which means each time I say Buck's name, Buck is the Oracle of a different random noun I've picked. This time, he is the Oracle of Chalk. Andrews S., Brendan, Dan Svensson, Jay Sunsarn, Andrew E., William C., Isabel Castillo, Josh Golden, Michael Creedle, Freddie, Richard Bat Brewster, Bryce Perry, Andy, Michael Parker, Alexander Gordon, and Stephen Carton. Our EP call out this episode is to Freddie. I don't know anything about you, so here's a poem based on the letters in your name. F is for the way you help fund the show. R is the remuneration you provide us. E is for the economic support that you've shown us. D is for the dollars you've thrown our way. The other D is for the Italian ducats that some of your donations have been converted to because I'm at heart a numismatist. Y is for the yield curve that suggests the current 30-year risk-free rate in the U.S. is about 0.57% if you take the 2.07% daily rate on a 30-year treasury bond and deduct a likely 1.5% liquidity premium. Thanks, Freddie. If you'd like to become an executive producer like Freddie, get a chat color in Discord and have me make up things about you periodically, as well as receive our executive producer-only podcast, So What's Your Plan? You can become one by clicking on Become a Supporter in the show notes or by going to patreon.com slash podcast. Yeah, I know, I said Patreon earlier. I'm not entirely sure why. If you super liked the episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magesthepodcast at gmail.com or at magesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on Spotify, Anchor, TuneIn, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. If you like us, please give us a review on a platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Every little bit helps. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.